Last week, Jason gave one of the most important sermons we'll hear at Hope Chapel. It refuted two ongoing heresies. They've been with us from the beginning, they'll be with us till the end. The first is legalism. The claim that we are saved by obedience to the law. If you didn't know, that's false. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The second heresy is lawlessness. The claim that obedience to God's law doesn't matter. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it matters. We're a holy people who worship a holy God. The way we live matters eternally. It's a testimony that our God reigns over us and reigns over all. It's also our testimony of our love for God. As Jason put it, we love Him by keeping His commandments because He is our God. He's not our God because we keep His commandments. How then do we know that we're saved? Jason reminded us that your assurance is not in your obedience nor in how strong your faith is. Slide. Your assurance is not in your obedience nor in how strong your faith is. It's not in how many or how few sins you've committed nor is it in how faithful you've been or will be. Your assurance is ever and only in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's in who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. It's in God's grace, not in your works. It's in His covenant faithfulness to you, not in your faithfulness to Him. And the question is, why is that? Well, if we are faithless, Christ remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. That's who Christ is. And we are united to Christ by faith. We're being conformed to his image by faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead. And therefore, faithful obedience, faithful obedience is a reflection of our identity in Christ. Faithful obedience is a reflection of our identity in Christ. It shows who we belong to and who we love above everything else in this world, just as we've been singing this morning. It shows others that the love of the Father is in us and that we delight in God and in His law. Our conduct has a greater impact than just our words. Our conduct has a greater impact than just our words. You show what you actually believe by the things that you do, not by the things that you say. So be careful to do. You show your love for others by what you do not by what you say. So be careful to do. God blesses you for what's in your heart, and that's revealed by what you do, not by what you say. So be careful to do God's commands. We've been called into a covenant relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and that relationship is nurtured by what we do. You might not have thought of it that way. My obedience actually nurtures my relationship with Christ. Yes, Nurtures my relationship with God. Yes. And you are nurtured by it as well. It's like tending a garden. If we don't do anything, and I'm often tempted, particularly in this heat, not to do anything with my garden, okay? But if we don't act and just let the garden grow fallow, then never guess what happens. Thorns, thistles, and weeds will quickly overtake it. And that's the picture of your heart if it's left unattended. It will become a dumping ground for all kinds of garbage that the world dumps in your backyard. The church has porous walls 
stuff from the culture tends to make its way into our lives and into this church. Stop that. <laughs> it's, a, it's an active effort that we have to do to try to stop that from happening. Because what happens is when the garbage from the world shows up in our backyard, it hides the kingdom from your sight. It hides the kingdom from your sight, and it hides the kingdom from the sight of others. Uh, they can't see it in you. It's been clouded over. If the things of the world invade your life daily, then guess what? You need to remove them daily. And why do we do that? Because they're foreign. They, they don't belong there. They are foreign to your life in Christ. Paul warns us about this in, in 2 Corinthians. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. That's who you are. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Tend your garden by being obedient to God. Recall the warning we heard last time. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and who keep his commandments. That's from Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10. We're going to pick up at that point in our message today. What does God then say? He destroys all others. He destroys all others. That's not to strike the fear of God into you. That's, that's to let you know how dearly loved you are, that he would keep you from that. Today's passage, beginning at chapter 7, verse 11, points to that warning. God exhorts us to consider our ways. Here's the theme of today's passage. Deuteronomy 7.11. It's the title of the sermon. Ah. Therefore, therefore, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Be careful to do them. Again, godly obedience identifies you as belonging to God. That phrase, be careful to do, isn't asking for your blind obedience or because you're afraid of destruction. This isn't about the what of obedience. It's not rote obedience, just doing it because you're supposed to, just because, you know, you, you go through the motions. Rather, it's about the why of obedience. Why do we obey? This phrase, be careful to do, is a key phrase. So we're going to chew on it for a little bit. It refers to our part of the covenant with God. It refers to our part of that covenant. We obey out of love for God, not out of fear of punishment. We desire to obey because we've been called by God and richly blessed by God. That's what we obey. God says, I will love you, I will make you my, you're my people. And our response to God is, and we will love you and we will be your people. And act accordingly. Now this phrase, be careful to do, is variously translated, keep these rules and regs. Keep these. Observe them. Obey them. Take care to follow or to do them. Heed them. So when you see that warning sign at work says, you know, dangerous, radioactive material. Oh, you don't have any radioactive material. Anyway, there are signs, warning signs, okay? Pay attention. Heed those signs. The word for do can mean to make or to fashion. Here's fun. It can also mean to be pressed or squeezed. Huh. The same word is found in Genesis 1.26, where God made or fashioned man in his image. God made us to reflect his image. 
We're to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth in his name for his glory. That's how we have dominion over. It's not ours to do with what we want. We take care of those things because they belong to God. So if you belong to God, it's your duty to take care of yourself, to take care of all those who also belong to God. You have a duty to them, to tend to them. We are to rule over all these things, caring for them and tending to them as God's possessions. Now, I believe that Jesus alluded to this original commandment when he told us to care for what he entrusted to us. Same idea, same concept, same word. He warned us, by the way, what did he entrust to you? The gospel. Take care of it. Tend to it. He warned us not to lord it over one another, to be servant of all. I think he alluded to this verse again after his resurrection when he told Peter to tend his sheep, to care for his sheep, to guard his sheep, to observe his sheep, to feed and to keep them. Part of being restored by Christ is to be careful to do what he commanded. We should be careful to do that. We should fashion and do all things according to his image, pressing them into his mold. Pressing all things into the mold of Christ because we're being pressed into his mold as we do that. Do you see that? Obedience. Obedience has an effect on us. Obedience is not to impress everybody else. It's not to impress God. It's simply a reflection of who we are. And we're made in the image of God. Act accordingly. Be pressed into that image. And everything you touch, try to press it into the image of Christ. In his own Colossians, we're told, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It's okay. It's okay to seek that reward. That's not a bad thing. You'll receive the inheritance as your reward. He will bless you for it. Why? Because you're serving the Lord Christ. He'll bless you for that. It's okay to seek blessings from God. He asks us to do that. We received God's law for a purpose. The rules are not an end in themselves. We so often make that mistake with all the things that we do. They're a means to an end. And that end is to glorify God, to magnify and to celebrate Him. Through our obedience, because His law reflects His infinite justice, it reflects His love, and it reflects His mercy. Why wouldn't we want to obey Him and perform His law, do His law, and do it with joy, with delight? You can see how rich this phrase is, be careful to do, and how much it implies. Let's read the passage as a whole, and then we'll savor the parts. Each part lays out a different blessing of being the people of God and of being obedient to God. There's a blessing in that. The first blessing is God's promise that we will be fruitful and multiply. We know all about that in this congregation. See all the babies? <laughs> Verse 12 and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. That's one of the benefits of being the people of God. You are blessed above all peoples. 
There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So here is repeated the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now being fulfilled in their seed and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. God said in the book of Genesis to Abraham, I will surely bless you. You can count on that. You can take it to the bank. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the blessing comes to us and then the blessing comes through us to everyone else. Through us to the world. It's not just for us individually. There's a reason why God has called us to proclaim his name to the world that the world might be blessed by that. This is telling us there was a pre-existing covenant with their fathers. And that covenant includes them as well. As they listen to, as they keep, as they do these rules, that covenant then is applied to them. They uphold their part of the covenant and God upholds his. Virtue is its own reward, as our parents used to tell us. At least my parents did. I don't know what your parents told you. But virtue is its own reward. And it's also a tangible reward. It's a blessing from the hand of God that our labors done in the name of God will produce their fruit in season. We shall be blessed above all other peoples on the face of the earth when we demonstrate that God is our God. And we are His people by obeying His commands. It's an expression of our love for Him. Yes, that's a repeated theme. I'll be saying that a number of times this morning. It's an expression of our love for Him and He will bless us as an expression of His love for us. It's not wrong to pray for a blessing when it's the very thing that God has promised to do for us. Jabez prayed for a blessing. He said, give me more turf. I could grow more stuff. <laughs> In our case, for the kingdom, it's give me more people that I can present the gospel to. Give me a larger field that I can speak to. Give me a larger audience that I can proclaim the gospel to. And as God blessed Jabez and gave him the territory that he asked for, he will do that for us. No, it's not the name it and claim it. <laughs> for some of you who have experienced this in your life, okay, that, that's not what we mean by name it and claim it. This actually is the covenant relationship that we have with God. That's what it comes from. It comes from the covenant relationship that we have with God. That's where the blessing comes from. Through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is initiated, it is sustained, and it is completed by God himself. We don't cause it to happen by our obedience. Jason hammered that home time and again last week. I hope you heard it clear. If you didn't hear that sermon, please go home, listen to that. My wife likes to say, read, mark, and inwardly digest. The second blessing. The second blessing is that we will be free from the diseases that afflict those who oppose God and hate us. We're going to be free from those. It's God's promise that we shall conquer our enemies. For God will do to them what he did to the Egyptians. Verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you know will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And no, that is not the health and wealth gospel. That's not that. Put it in the context of Christ's words that he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. I did not come to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. By his stripes we'll be healed of our sin and rebellion. We won't be left in the grave 
nor allowed to see corruption. We were buried with Christ and we've been raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. Every promise of the Old Testament, every promise of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ's blood. This is not a different covenant of grace, but it's a better covenant of grace. Enacted on better promises. That's what it says in Hebrews 8, 6. Verse 16 here in Deuteronomy. Verse 16. And you shall consume all that... No, this is not cannibalism. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes... Careful how you read God's word. You sh, your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, if you say in your heart, not even with your lips, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, oh goodness, how can I possibly dispossess them? God tells you, we encourage you, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm. He's talking to the generation that experienced that. He says, you know what God has done for you. The signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord, here's the promise, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Bottom line, stop being afraid of them. This blessing should sound familiar. If it doesn't, let me give you some reminders here. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. No weapon forged against us can succeed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the rock on which Christ has built his church. For the apple of God's eye hidden under the shadow of his wings. Let the world tremble before the one who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. We who are his are kept by him. All others will be swept away. All others will be swept away. If anything, pity them. Don't be afraid of them. Pity them. They don't even know what's coming. You can tell them until you're blue in the face and they won't hear it. Tell them anyway. Give them the gospel. Give them hope. Give them the option. Give them the choice. Let them come to Christ. You don't know who's elect and who's not. Proclaim the, the gospel to everything that moves and breathes. Therefore, do not fear. Thirdly, here's the third blessing. Thirdly, God will afflict those who afflict you. They shall not stand against you, but you will make an end of them Little by little, until they're destroyed. <laughs> That's a strange blessing. Verse 20, Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them. It's an image, it's a metaphor, it's, it's figurative language. It means he's going to send terrors among them. He's going to freak them out. Until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. Hide themselves from you. You're kidding. They're afraid of me? <laughs> they hide themselves from the people of God because they're terrified of the God who lives in our midst. Assuming God is visible among us. Why is that? He can be seen at work in us individually as we love one another and love Him and lead quiet and peaceable lives. And He can be heard in the testimony of the church proclaimed from its pulpits all over the city, all over the world this day. 
and from the mouths of his witnesses. Who are those? These witnesses include every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's you. You're his witnesses. He sent you into the world to witness of him. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. So be careful to do. So be careful to do. That they may know he has named you as his elect and that he is the Lord and there is no other God besides him. How are they going to know if you don't tell them? And now comes a stern warning about dealing with the surrounding culture. This is from H.R. Niebuhr, uh, famous theologian, 40s, 50s, 60s. Culture, by definition, is devoid of Christ. Culture, by definition, is devoid of Christ. So when you're looking at the culture, don't think you're part of the culture, because that culture is devoid of Christ. How do we know it's devoid of Christ? Because in the place where Christ is present and his Lord is here in the kingdom, is in his churches, is among his people. Therefore, by definition, the culture outside the church is devoid of Christ. Verse 21. You shall not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away those nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once. Don't do know it all at once. Why not? Lest the wild beasts, meaning the vultures and the jackals, all those who have been destroyed, lying about. Okay, we don't want all the jackals and the vultures showing up. So we do it little by little. What does that look like? We don't want to grow too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. How do we destroy them? <laughs> this is the fun part for the gospel of love <laughs> if the culture is devoid of Christ and hates God how do you overcome that? love on them <laughs> freaks them out they don't know what to do with that <laughs> God is clear that the surrounding culture is enemy territory we're not out to change it we are not out to change the culture that's not our mission we're out to conquer it we're out to conquer it. Our mission is to be fishers of men, casting our gospel nets so that we draw out of the world and into the kingdom fish of many kinds. That's what it says in Matthew 13, 47. As Christ is describing to us, what does this kingdom of God look like? Well, it's like this big net. You know, you toss it out and you draw fish of all kinds. Great. Perfectly clear. Thanks. But that's what's going on when we present the gospel. We toss the net out and we bring in fish of all kinds, of every kind, every tribe, nation, and tongue. We raise them up in the faith. We teach them Christ. And then they become salt and light in a godless culture, altering it little by little. Acting as leaven in the flour, causing it to rise. Yeah, that's in Matthew 13 as well. We infiltrate the culture. We infiltrate the culture. First, we set the captives free. We're busy changing human hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ came to do, and that's what we're doing. Remember when he opened up the scroll in the, in the, in the, uh, in the synagogue? He read from where? Isaiah 61.1. I've come to set the captives free. And he turned around to us and he says, get to work. <laughs> that's your job too. I'm here to do the work of my father. That's your work too. 
get to work. Be careful to do. Then together, we act as sanctifying agents in the culture. Then together, we act as sanctifying agents in the culture, and that takes time, hence little by little. Our mission is not directed at the institutions of a society, but at the people that God is calling to himself. That's the focus of our labor. Institutions change when people change, and that happens from within. Yes, we must seek and uphold justice in our society. It's part of our duty and our calling as Christians. But there are no political or legal solutions to a sinful heart, are there? All the time before I came to Christ, I studied every solution I could find. God walked me off the end of every pier. I tried psychology, sociology, law, politics. Dead ends. You cannot change people from outside. They must be changed from inside. And the only way that happens is by the touch of God who regenerates us, causes us to see and to hear and to understand things that we could never see, hear, or understand before. That's how we change. How do we do that? With the gospel. God regenerates them in the moment that you are declaring the gospel and enables them to come to him. He draws them to himself just as he drew you to himself. When we confuse the gospel of Christ with a cultural makeover, putting lipstick on a pig, when we confuse the gospel of Christ with a cultural makeover, we weaken the gospel message. We dilute, twist, and pervert it. When we seek to use the means and the weapons of the world to attain spiritual ends, we abuse the gospel. We cannot change the culture by worldly means. Let me repeat that. We cannot. It's impossible to change the culture by worldly means. It will change only as we, the people of God, stand firm in the faith as we received it unmoved by all those human arguments and vain philosophies coming at us from the culture. How do we respond to that? We don't want to hear it. That's not a message from God. And if it's not a message from God, where's it coming from? And therefore, we change the culture by evangelizing the lost and discipling the found. (laughs) It's real simple. We change the culture by evangelizing the lost and by discipling the found. These things, these two things, evangelism and discipleship, are essential to our worship of God. They are individual responsibilities. You mean it's not just yours? Religious George? No. No. They're everybody's responsibility. Individually. And that's what the church equips us to fulfill. So be careful to do them. Every other means is a god of this world. All of those are lifeless idols. Don't serve or bow down to them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't obey them. Don't be tempted by them. Be as crafty as that serpent of old. But be as gentle and as loving as Christ himself. Why? Because that freaks them out. Train your mind. Train your mind. Discipline. service, Romans 12, 1. 
That's what that means. Give yourself to God completely. Get the gray matter working in the cause of Christ. Get it to understand the things of God so that you can share those effectively with others. If you don't understand them, you can't possibly explain them to somebody else. So there's work to be done. Train your mind. Discipline your body. Listen up. You will imitate whatever you focus on. Whether that's good or whether that's bad. You will imitate whatever you focus on. If you focus on the world, you will become like the world. And you'll behave according to its ways. If you focus on God's kingdom, if you focus on God's kingdom, you'll be conformed to Christ and act according to His ways. Don't focus on the world. Stop worrying about the world. Stop fearing what's going on in the world. Nothing has changed since Adam's fall. Didn't you know that? The world has always been this way and it will remain this way till Christ returns. Does scripture teach that? Yes, it does. Bobbing heads. Put them on the dashboard of your, of your car. Yes, he does. Our mission, our practices, our methods have not and must not change. The means we use can change, but the, the mission and the methods do not. The method is to proclaim the gospel. The mission. <laughs> Disciple the nations. Don't convert them. Disciple them. We don't need more conversions. We need more commitments. Our mission, practice, and methods have not and must not change no matter what changes we see taking place in the world around us. So there you have them. Three blessings and a warning. So much for this passage. Now I'm going to wander about and stir the pot and see what we can get out of this stuff. We are to be careful to do the things that God commands because He is a covenant-keeping God and a merciful God to those who love Him and keep His commandments. So, let's review. God is gracious and merciful to us because that's who He is. And we are obedient to Him because that's who we are. He is our God and we are His people. We are in covenant with Him. There's an agreement and understanding between us. That covenant was initiated by Him. It is sustained by Him. And it is now being fulfilled by Him. Our obedience is how we demonstrate that we are the beneficiaries of that covenant. A covenant, we call it the Old Testament, the New Testament, a testament. What do you call it? Last will and testament. It's a will. We're beneficiaries of the will. Inheritors of the kingdom. Our obedience is how we demonstrate that we are beneficiaries of that covenant. Children of God, heirs of the kingdom. Our obedience is how we show that. Consider that every relationship is, in a sense, a covenantal relationship. There are rules that govern it. It must be tended like a garden. It's like a broken record, Bill. For those of you, it's a piece of vinyl. You know. <laughs> it must be tended like a garden or else it will become unattractive and unproductive. That's your heart and that's your life. It takes time and money to tend the garden of your heart. 
And that's always at the expense of something else. You preached on that a few months ago. Yeah, I did. Faithfully following Christ will cost us everything. Faithfully following Christ will cost us everything. So let me ask you, what will you give up to follow Christ? What will you give up to follow Christ? What will you spend to have time with Him and to devote yourself to Him so that you may be blessed by Him? Not so that you avoid punishment, but that's so you will be blessed by Him. Weigh this against everything else in your life. Is He a pearl of great price that you've discovered in the field? Will you sell everything you own to purchase that field? You never guess where that's from. Yet Matthew 13, describing the kingdom yet again. He gives us a whole slew of, of images of, of what the kingdom is like and how the kingdom works and how we behave in the kingdom. When you look at the things of this world that you possess, do you love him more than these? Who asked that question? It was Christ talking to Peter. Peter's worried about everybody else's thinking, always boasting about all the things that he's going to do for God. You want to cause God to roll over in laughter? Lord, boy, you should see what I'm going to do for you. And Peter looked back and he says, but what about that one? What about those guys? And Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? Yeah, but the fish, and we've got this great, you know, hole, we've got the net out, you know. Yeah, but do you love me more than these? Peter, I'm asking you to make a choice. He asks every one of us to make a choice. Do you love me more than these things that you've been pursuing, that you give everything to? Will you do that for me? Is his name above every other name in heaven and on earth to you? It's not enough to know that intellectually and doctrinally speaking, you know, and we sing it in our hymns, you know, name above all names. Yeah, but is he the name above all names to you? Do you call him your Lord and your God, as Thomas did, with that same awe and wonder, that same shock? <gasps> This isn't to convict or condemn you if you haven't tended to this precious garden. Otherwise, I'd have to join you in that parade. And you've let it become overgrown at times, as I have. This is an exhortation and an encouragement to spend the time and the effort needed to make your garden attractive and productive, the garden of your heart. Labor in your own life and in the lives of others. Our obedience makes every other relationship more fruitful. Our obedience to God makes every relationship we've got more fruitful. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. We need to sow the seeds of the gospel into others and water and feed those seeds with grace and with love. But we can't do that if we aren't first watering and feeding those seeds in our own life. Duh. How are you going to drop seeds if you haven't grown the fruit? Again, that takes time and effort. Let it be a time of joy. <laughs> not, not a burden. Let it be a time of joy. And may your efforts be a blessing. We sing that blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. Remember that you're no longer your own. You belong to God. Your heart is the Lord's garden. Your heart is the Lord's garden. It's not yours. Your heart is the Lord's garden. And it must be tended to. Why do you think he had Adam tending the garden? To set an example for the rest of us. 
It must be tended to, so clear out the garbage. Verse 25. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house, into his house, into the household of God. Don't bring that stuff in here. And become devoted to destruction like it. That's what's going to happen if you do. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. The things of the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. What do you think that warning was about? It comes from of old, from the beginning. This age has many golden calves to worship, doesn't it? We got it good. America is the place to be, you can tell by all the folks coming. They glitter in the sun, all of these golden things. They're attractive to the eye, they're pleasing to the flesh. And yet God's warning is clear, do not covet them. Don't seek them or bow down to them or sacrifice to them, hoping to receive from them what God alone can provide. I've mentioned this before. I was in a Sunday school class years ago, and uh, the, the teacher in the class said, well, what's, what's the most dangerous thing? What's the, most, uh, the thing we need to be most careful of right now in the church? And I sat down at the table, and a guy and his wife just came back from Mission Field, and they, they didn't hesitate. They said, materialism. <laughs> materialism. Stuff. Our lust for stuff. Materialism is a religion. It's practiced day in and day out here in America and around the world. We live in a materialistic culture, devoid of Christ, devoid of Christ because they substituted materialism for Christ. You must not set the world's idols before your eyes and allow your gaze to be taken away from the one true God who possesses you. Does he? Who possesses you? He has made a covenant with you. Don't break faith with him. Don't break faith with God. Don't break faith with him by devoting yourself to other gods, even part-time. Why not? You can't serve two masters. We know the phrase, but we don't actually apply it to the life we're living. We treat those as almost two different things. You can't serve two masters, so why are you spending so much time gathering materials, stuff, getting bigger and bigger barns to put it into. Stop that. What are you using it for? It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Whatever worldly thing you think can make you secure, or happy, or fulfilled, is a false god to you. You hold on to it in vain. Why? Because God has devoted it to destruction. I taught in a sermon one time, don't hold on to these things. Why not? Because they're all going down. You're going with them if you're holding on. Let go. Let go. Don't put it above Christ by devoting more time and labor to it than you do to Him. Nothing could be more foolish. Utterly detest and abhor whatever it is. Disavow it. Deny it. Put it away from you. That's choice. That's something that you do. Not something you talk about. Your appearance, your employment, 
your house, your car, your income, your status, your education, the likes on Facebook, even your earthly relationships do not define you. God calls you his treasured possession and, and blesses you simply because you're his. That defines you. The fact that you belong to God, that defines you. Enjoy the life he's given to you. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, right? Okay? All these things are not bad, but they're all just, they, they slip through your fingers. They, there's nothing you can actually hold on to forever. How does Ecclesiastes end? It talks about all the stuff in life, and all of it just leads to a dead end. And in the end, he says, and here's what it all comes down to. Fear God. Obey his commands. Huh. Enjoy the life he's given to you. These are not blessings to be sniffed at. We're not asking to be hermits and paupers. But don't enjoy these things above him. Just don't enjoy these things above him. Give him your time, your treasure, and your labor in thankfulness for being your God. Just out of gratitude that he's your God and that you belong to him. Which of you has ever said, you know, I, I just don't seem to have time to talk with my spouse, play with my kid. Yes, I, I hear the spouses saying, yeah, and they didn't ever talk to me. But I don't have time to talk with my spouse. I don't have time to play with my kids. I, I don't have time to meet my friends. I just can't make the effort to go to their birthday parties, their graduations, their weddings, or their funerals. Again, there may be times when you feel like that. But then we get a grip and give them the time and attention they need and that we need with them. The time and attention that those people need and that we need with them. We're social creatures by God's design. We need other people. We need to share life with them. Good times and bad. We need to care for them. And we need to be cared for by them. They need to matter to us. And we need to matter to others. Otherwise, uh, you know, what else is life for? My mom's philosophy of life, three square meals and a four to sleep. And a four to sleep, that, that, that's life. Thanks, Mom. Really inspired by that. We're not here to survive. God didn't give you your life just to survive. We're here to prosper. We're here to prosper and to grow and to be fruitful. God has made provision for us to prosper. He gave us rules to live by and guidelines to help us create and sustain healthy, healthy, healthy relationships. But our primary relationship is with Him. Relationships are good, but your primary relationship is with God. Every other relationship flows from that one for better or for worse. As that relationship suffers, every other relationship you've got will suffer. Begins vertically, then goes horizontally. And therefore we need to be married to Him, for better or worse. You need to be married to God for better or worse. Not even death will separate us from His love. Right? Nothing, Paul says. I've, I've thought of everything. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Relationships require time and effort, structure and care. That's as true of our relationship with God as it is of any other relationship that we've got. We don't whine about having a good time with our loved ones. Oh man, if I have to have fun with them again this week, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
and yet we may whine about having a good time with God. Mm. Not even knowing what it means to help you with that on your handout or a series of awkward questions. <laughs> you can chew on those this week. I had to chew on them just to ask them, and then I didn't want to answer them. Lynn says those are good questions, but I don't want to answer them. <laughs> and maybe that's because we don't know who he, who he is. Maybe we don't know God as He is. And so the time we spend with Him isn't a good time. When we don't know how to enjoy the company of someone else, we often substitute something else for it. If we feel that they've hurt, frustrated, or ignored us, we may spend more time at work. I used to do that. More time doing chores around the house. I used to do that. More time watching TV or playing games. Well, I watch TV, but I've never played games. I just, not my thing. We withdraw. That's what happens. When you're uncomfortable and nervous around other people, you don't know how to enjoy them and to savor their company. We withdraw. We make ourselves unavailable to avoid the discomfort and the unease we feel when we're around them. And you never guess what happens from that. We suffer for it, and so do they. We suffer for it, and so do they. They're hurt by it. They're hurt by it. When you withdraw from others, you hurt them by that. And guess what? That's true of our relationship with God, too. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. James 4.8. That's God's promise to you. Don't put conditions on that relationship. Avoid false expectations. So often that's what happens. We think God is going to do something for us, and he doesn't do it, but he never promised you that. Careful. Careful. Avoid false expectations. Because our true identity is found in Christ, we find ourselves in him. Because our true identity is found in Christ, we find ourselves in him. We come to know God as He is, not as, he think we, not as we think He is. We can't find ourselves in anything else or in anyone else. Don't try. So don't try. Through faith in Christ, you've been given the right to be a child of God, so be careful to do accordingly. Fashion yourself according to His image. You are being conformed to His image by the decree of God and by the power of His Spirit at work in you. Show by what you do that He is your God and there is no other. To you. For you. Not a concept, not a theory. To you. And that's what this passage is all about. Don't run away from God in your pain, fear, or suffering. Run to Him. Don't run away from God expecting to find your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction in anything else. Run to Him for these. But you won't do that if you don't know or you don't believe that you're lost apart from Him. Nurture the covenant relationship that you have with Him. Believe that every good thing you have comes from Him. So, Three blessings. I'm going to close with this. Just a reminder, those three blessings were, were, uh, were promised for our obedience. First, we'll be fruitful and multiply. That's both a promise and a command. That's both a promise and a command. If we're careful to do what God commands, to love Him and to love others as Christ loved us, to disciple the nations and teach them to observe all that Christ commanded us, He will, He will, He will, He promises to make us fruitful and multiply us. 
Christ will then present his bride to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. That's the result of obedience. Second, he has removed the sickness of our soul and the corruption of our flesh. He's removed that. He's kept us from the plagues that he visits upon our enemies. So be careful to thank him for that. Duh. This good sermons just point out the obvious. <laughs> That's one of the obvious ones. So thank him for that. To confess your sins to him. If you do that, you'll never guess what scripture says. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now live in that liberty. You've been free from that. Live in that liberty. Third, God will afflict those who afflict us. We don't need to seek revenge. We don't need to defend ourselves. God is our avenger. God is our defender. Rest in that. Quit getting so agitated. Oh, I got a singer back for them. Oh, I get, give me something I could say. I just one liner that I can, you know, really decimate them with that. No. God is your avenger. God is your defender. It's why the nations rage against him and why they fear and hate us, his people. They see in us a contrast to themselves, I hope. I hope they see a contrast in us to who they are. They are reminded by us of what awaits them on that day of judgment. They all know. They just don't want to be reminded of it. These covenant promises aren't made in return for our obedience. Rather, they are received through our obedience as we obey. Remember I said that obedience is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. There's the means. That's how we get this. The blessings promised by God should cause us to value our covenant relationship with Him above all other relationships and possessions. That makes our obedience the mark of our submission to Him and our fellowship with Him. We trust and obey because we value our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We must tend that relationship just as Adam tended the garden to bring order to it and to be sustained by it. Be sustained by your relationship with God. He'll help you to endure all this stuff that we see going on. Jesus told us that apart from him, the vine, the branch cannot bear its fruit. We can't bear fruit apart from Christ. It will wither. That vine, that branch, unattached to the vine, withers. Abide in him then by being obedient to Him. If we do that, then we'll bear much fruit. If we do that, we will bear much fruit. We'll stand firm, fulfill our purpose, find our joy, and be blessed by it. Be careful to do what He commands, for He commands us out of His love for us. He commands us out of His love for us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your loving kindness towards us. We thank you for your forbearance with us. We thank you for your law. We thank you for the covenant we have. We thank you for Jesus Christ who fulfilled that covenant on our behalf. Who made us perfectly acceptable in your sight. Who has cleansed us from all unrighteousness so that we may stand perfect before you, robes of white in the blood of Christ. Oh, Lord God, may we be thankful this day and every day that comes 
until he comes again. Amen.